The scripture reading this morning is from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready to not only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, let the will of the Lord be done. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And today... We're going to do something a little different. Normally, after the text is read for us, we walk through what Luke was seeking to explain in the book of Acts and how he, what he was recording in the first century is relevant and continues to inspire us to follow Jesus in line with Jesus in the 21st century. But today, we're taking the content from our passage that was just read for us, the broader breadth of Scripture, and some historical insight to actually hear from Luke in an imaginative way in first person. This morning, I want to invite you to, to join me kind of on an imaginative journey. Don't worry, I haven't gone crazy. I'm going to introduce myself as Luke in a minute, and that's not because I'm nuts if you're new. Um, but it's a journey, and here's why we're going to do it. One, this is an amazing story. And two, we need to not only just hear what Luke has to say, we need to see what Luke saw. We need to learn what Luke learned. So will you join me in hearing from Luke today? Sometimes people can surprise us, can't they? Especially the people you think you really know. There's the ones that surprise you the most. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. My name is Luke. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you here at Christ Community. And, uh, you know, I've, been, I've always been one of those people ever since I was a kid who loved how things worked. 
Um, maybe you would say in the 21st century that I, I had like the scientific mind. I wanted to know the facts. I wanted to know how A plus B equaled C. I loved how the body grew and when it didn't grow, why it wasn't growing or how the body healed itself and when it didn't heal itself, why it wasn't doing what it naturally does, which is why I guess I became a physician. Um, and it doesn't take you long to dabble in the medical field to realize that there's a lot of limitations to medicine. It doesn't take you very long um, to be in the medical field or to be a physician to have the pain and the death that surrounds you again and again, day after day, until it starts to wear on your soul. You know what I mean? Which is why when I heard about Jesus, this Jewish man who who said he was the son of God, and not just hearing about what he claimed to be, but, but what he did, how he died, how he died on a Roman cross, and how they stabbed him in the side, and out of his side came blood and water, how his heart stopped, his body quit as a doctor. I'm very interested in this. Then he was put into a tomb for three days, totally out of commission, and then rose physically from the grave because people said they talked with him and they ate breakfast with him after the fact. And listen, this doesn't happen every day. And, and, and I don't know about the way it is in the 21st century, but in the first century, there were tons of hoaxes, right? Like there were all these miracle drugs that if you just take it, it'll change your life, you know? Join this cult and you will be a better you. And it's like, no way. I'm not weird. I'm not going to do that. And remember, I like to know how things work and how they fit together. But there was something different about what was going on here. The, the people who said they saw Jesus alive they didn't want something from me. They wanted something for me. And you know, as a doctor, you get, real, you get used to real quick, not just being able to discern where pain is coming from in people, but being able to discern deception. When people come to you, they, one, they either don't even realize that they're lying or often will sometimes lie to get something from you that only you can provide in the medical profession. But there was something different about these folks. I saw it in their, their eyes. They really wanted me to know that God loved me for me. And that's why he sent his son Jesus. That's why he died on the cross for me. That's why he rose again so that I would know God and be known by God and be forgiven by God. And the, lo like the person who's at the center of all this was a guy named Paul, an apostle. And that might not sound strange to you, like, but that was huge for me. Like absolutely Huge for me and really huge for anybody in that first century culture. And here's why. Like Jews like Paul didn't invite Gentiles like me into this kind of thing. Like historically, God was doing something unique through the people of Israel. And the Gentiles could kind of be a part of it, but they couldn't be at the center. And there were all these different structures, like these hierarchies and these tiers. Like the Jewish people were here and the Gentiles, we were, I mean, we got to be part of it, but we got to be down here, and it showed up in all the different kinds of structures, like in the temple, like if you went in, where God's presence was most palpably felt, the holy of holies, you could only go so far as a Gentile. Jews could go further in, but as a Gentile, there was a wall, and it literally said on there, if a Gentile passes here, it could cost you your life. And it was one of the few areas that the Roman Empire said, yeah, okay, Jewish people, you can instill that law. So Jew Gentiles did not walk past that wall for the fear of losing their life. Gentiles didn't go into Jewish people's homes because they weren't invited, not only because it wasn't taboo, but it was seen as immoral. I mean, Gentiles, like me, were seen as outcasts. And then Paul shows up and says everything's different. 
because of Jesus. And he doesn't just say it's different. He actually lives different. I mean, he, he actually invited me to travel with him, which, which is absolutely absurd in the first century. I got to sit next to Paul, eat with Paul, learn from Paul. I was a friend of Paul's. And man, Jesus was doing some really amazing things through Paul. I mean, there were people who were born blind, who were able to see, people who were born lame, who were able to walk. And I didn't have any medical explanation for it. I mean, I would quiz these folks and like, no, this dude was born lame. And now like, here are his crutches that he used to use, but now he doesn't need them. Look at this. This is amazing. There was no sort of explanation. It was truly amazing what God was doing through Paul. But it wasn't all glamorous. There were plenty of times where Paul was whipped, where he was beaten. I mean, he was stoned so bad once, we all thought he was dead. I mean, everybody thought he was dead. Even the people who were stoning him, they left, <laughs> thinking they'd finished the job. And that's where I came in. You know, Paul used to call me his beloved physician. I would mend his wounds. I knew the scars on his back like the back of my hand. When he wore the shackles in prison, it was me who put a salve on the blisters and the skin worn down to bone. And there's something intimate about that. When I saw the, the pain wince in his eyes and both the fear and the confidence he simultaneously had when he was in prison. There were even times where it was just Paul and I. Like everybody else had to be somewhere else. But Luke, me, and Paul. Me being Luke. <laughs> it's weird talking about yourself in the first or the third person, isn't it? And you know, I really got to know Paul. I really got to know him, and he got to know me and in a way that he became like a friend that stuck closer than a brother. And I loved Paul. I mean, this man who introduced me to Jesus, and more than that, said that me, a Gentile, could actually be a part on the front lines first-tier citizen, and what God was doing in the church. That's my Paul. And you think you know someone, and you, you think you know where their life is headed. I mean, we traveled all over the place, and we took all kinds of avenues of travel. We took ship, you know, we took uh, camel, we took llama, wouldn't recommend llamas. Um, I would take walking for miles over a llama any day. But, so we took all kinds of, I mean, we traveled everywhere. And when you travel with someone, you see every, you know, you see their idiosyncrasies. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you ever travel with your friends and you're like, oh my goodness, who are you? You're so weird. Well, Paul had his, he's a type A personality. He packed his stuff just right. And if you move things, because I had to put a salve in there, we had an interesting conversation. But I mean, so Paul had his idiosyncrasies when he traveled. And I thought I knew where he was going. And, and God was doing amazing things. It was like, because remember, Jesus is alive. He's ascended at the right hand of God, the Father up in heaven, and his kingdom's coming to bear. And truly amazing things are happening. And I wasn't naive to the brokenness that still existed in the world. But I thought I knew where things were going. And one of the greatest surprises in my life was when I realized that where Paul thought his life was headed and where I thought Paul's life was headed one of the greatest surprises in my life was to realize those were worlds apart. And it all come down, came down to this little city called Jerusalem. We were in agreement that Jerusalem meant, for Paul, suffering. 
to some degree, and maybe even death. But where Paul saw a call, I mean, back when we were in Ephesus, Paul would say, the Holy Spirit has constrained me to go to Jerusalem. Where Paul saw a calling and he was willing to die, I thought he was dead wrong. And I told him, and I've recorded all of this in a little book called the Book of Acts. But this morning, I just want to talk to you about and retell this moment for us together as we remember together about how I was both right and wrong when it came to my confrontation of Paul. See, I remember it was, it was like it was yesterday. We were, on a, we were on a ship, you know, heading to Jerusalem. And our first stop was in this little city. It was actually a pretty big city called Tyre. It had these brilliant beaches. If you're looking for a vacation spot, might I recommend Tyre. But we, we had to stop there, not because it was a great vacation spot, but because that's where our ship needed to unload some cargo. And while we were there, the church, as, man, they did this over and over again. The church would just show up when we showed up. And their hospitality was through the roof such that we stayed there for a whole week. But man, did this church have some words for Paul. Like there was a moment where the Holy Spirit spoke to them about the suffering that was to come on Paul if he went to Jerusalem. And they started pleading with Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't do this. But I saw that look in Paul's eye. There was no change in. He was headed to Jerusalem. But this little church was persistent. They, men, women, and children walked out with Paul and I all the way to the beach, and we knelt down on the beach. They kissed Paul, but they were urging him not to go all the way to the very end. And still Paul got on the boat. We, we kept traveling, and finally we got to another place called Caesarea. And there was a, a gentleman, one of the most charismatic guys I've ever met, named Philip, the evangelist. I mean, this guy could lead someone to Jesus using an obscure passage in Leviticus. I mean, he was, he was excellent. And we were there in his house, and you got to remember, okay, so I grew up a Gentile. I'm not used to some of the more mystic stuff, you know, that's more common in a Jewish background. And we're there in Philip's household with the whole church gathered together, and this prophet named Agabus comes down from Jerusalem. And he comes up to Paul, and he takes Paul's belt off of him. Have you ever had anybody take your belt off of you? I hope not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this was a crazy situation. Agabus takes Paul's belt. He wraps it around his own legs. Agabus is around his own legs and around his hands. And he looks at Paul and he says, The Holy Spirit says, Whoever's belt this is, the person who goes to Jerusalem, who owns this belt, they will be bound by the Jews and handed over to the Gentiles. I don't know about you, but that's never happened to me when I was in like a church gathering where somebody did something so dramatic. And we all lost it. I mean, we saw where, light, where Paul was headed if he went to Jerusalem. We all started pleading with him. Paul, don't go. This isn't a good idea. Like, you see, we all see that what Jerusalem means is suffering. Have you ever had um, that friend where they're kind of at this decision moment in life? And they can either choose path A or path B. And path B... If you know, you look down a couple years and path B is just pain and destruction, right? And you're like, please don't take path B. Take path A. It's so much better. It's easier. It's like good for you. And, and I had a framework for this because Paul had again and again come to churches and even when he proclaimed the gospel, he said there are really two paths. You can either follow your own selfish ambitions and passions 
described by sin in these destructive cycles, and it'll lead to pain. Maybe not tomorrow, but surely years down the road, you're going to look back with regret saying, why didn't I listen? Or you can follow Jesus. Two paths. But this was different. This was Christians disagreeing about what the will of God was for Paul in the gray. The Holy Spirit was clear that there's suffering in Jerusalem. But we saw pain. Paul saw a calling. And I remember how he responded to all of us there in that moment. It, it was so crystal clear. He says, like, why are you weeping? You're breaking my heart. For I'm ready to not only be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I thought, really, Paul? <laughs> like, I can see where your life is going to be in 10 years. If you don't go to Jerusalem, you could be planting churches. You could be leading more people to Jesus, more people like me, Gentiles, who don't know that they're included in this. You could be doing more miracles. I could see what this, this amazing ministry you could have 10 years down the road. Why are you going to give up on your life now? What's this going to do to the movement? What's this going to do to us as a church? What does this mean for me? Because I love you, Paul. And I pled and I wept and I cried for Paul not to go to Jerusalem. This isn't it. This can't be the right decision. But after a while, I saw that look in Paul's eyes again. It was the same look he had in his eyes when we were in Athens. And he was called to give a presentation of the gospel in the Aragopas. Aragopas, whatever. I still can't say that right. Um, it was the same look he had in his eyes when in the name of Jesus he healed a lame man who, could, who was born lame and he could now walk and people started to try to worship him as if he was the Greek god Hermes and he had this utter determination in his eyes that he wouldn't let them worship him. It wasn't about him, it was about Jesus. And it was that same look I saw in his eyes. And so we just realized we, we're not going to persuade Paul. We're not going to be able to do it. And so we resigned to let the will of the Lord be done. And so Paul left. But I wasn't going to let him go alone. This is my friend. We're in this together. So I went with him. And we made our way to Jerusalem. And it's hard to describe in words what was going on inside of me. I don't, Paul looked a lot more confident than I did. But when we went into Jerusalem, you've just heard all of these pronouncements. I mean, two churches in a row and a prophet <laughs> saying, if you go to Jerusalem... That means suffering, imprisonment, or maybe worse. The moment you walk into the beautiful gates of Jerusalem, all I can think about is death is around the corner and every drop of a pot or the cry of a baby. And I think that is the, that's the clarion call of the end. Well, when we get there, the church embraces us. They, they, they bring us in and they tell us about what God's doing amongst the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. It's really exciting. And then they turn very quickly to Paul's precarious position. <laughs> Because Jerusalem is kind of like the Mecca for Jews who hate Paul. Um, and, he, you know, there had been these stories going around that Paul had been proclaiming Jesus. And that wasn't even the thing that got most of what were the Jews that were really angry at Paul, angry at Paul. The reason they were so angry at Paul was that when he was proclaiming that Jesus had, was the Messiah, lived, died, and rose again, it meant something diametri diametrically different, new, when it came to relating with the Gentiles. That everybody who now embraces Jesus is a part of God's people. And that ticked off a ton of folks. 
Because what does that mean for the law of Moses? What does this mean? And those old barriers are hard to crumble down. Well, when we got there, they had a plan. And I thought it was a pretty good plan, frankly. Um, they decided there's already this group of, uh, of gentlemen who were entering into a vow of purification. It was like this vow of worship that they would do in the inner ring of the temple. And when Paul, if Paul were to join them, it would communicate to the broader Jewish people, his people, he's Jewish, that, hey, I respect the Jewish people and customs. This is not meant to be disrespect in any way, shape, or form. And, and listen, I couldn't go with him into the temple on the first day because remember, there's that barrier. And if I pass it, I could die. If I pass it and I'm with Paul, there could be this whole ruckus and all of the suspicions that they have about Paul might be affirmed. So you know what? I just kind of kept my distance. But he went in and, and, and really it encouraged me because I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, Paul's starting to th see things my way. <laughs> you know, maybe he'll do this for a few days and then he'll kind of get out of here and we can actually get out unscathed. And really it was about how long he stayed in Jerusalem rather than just going to Jerusalem. So maybe Paul's starting to realize I was right. Well, he does this for about seven days and we're getting a bit optimistic at this point. But on the seventh day, wouldn't you know it, there are some Jews that Paul had debated in another city alongside of his missionary journeys. And they recognized Paul. And they called him out in the middle of the temple. And they said, there's Paul, the one who's turning the world against Moses and the traditions of our fathers. And then they accuse him falsely. They say that he brought Gentiles past that really sacred barrier in the temple, which he didn't. But I mean, they, he'd been hanging out with Gentiles, so it was easy to kind of assume that he might have. But it was completely, you know, un they had no foundation for that accusation, but they made it nonetheless. And quickly things started to escalate out of control. Stuff was about to go down right here, right now. And at first they kind of rouse everybody up in the temple and it spreads out to the whole city. And the whole city comes and they take Paul and they drag him out of the city and they start beating him mercilessly. And they were going to kill Paul outside of the city gates with every sense of justification of the righteousness of the law of Moses behind them. Until, ironically enough, the Roman guard comes to the rescue, kind of. They, they, they break up this mob mentality and riot, and they surround Paul, and they arrest Paul. And people are still trying to get at Paul to the point that they lift him up above the crowd. I mean, this is mob mentality to the nth degree. And they bring him to the barracks. And I'm thinking to myself, this is my worst nightmare. This is what we'd warned you about, Paul. This is why we told you not to come here. Don't you see? And he got up to the barracks. And he motions. He asked the guard, he's like, can I talk to the crowd? And he motions to the crowd that he's about to speak. And, I mean, it was, it was chaos everywhere. I, I couldn't get too close, but I could be within earshot. And he starts speaking to the crowd. And he does so in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect. You know, Paul is a lot of things. But there's one thing he's not, and he's not masochistic. He wasn't chasing after death for death's sake. He was chasing after Jesus, but it seemed like death was always on his heels. And when he began to speak in Aramaic, the chaos went from a dull roar 
to utter silence. He spoke of the rich tradition they have in their forefathers. And they leaned in, curious as to what Paul, a fellow Jew, might have to say to them in light of the accusations. And Paul begins to tell his story. I've heard him tell his story a thousand times as we went from city to city to city. Paul always told his story. It was through his story that gave him validation for why he believed the good news himself about Jesus. He would tell about how he was born Jewish and his family was like the most zealous of Jews such that his ancestors were Pharisees and he was a Pharisee and was so adamantly Jewish that he was in, in complete antagonism towards the way, the Christian faith. And he would persecute. He was holding Stephen's coat when the first Christian martyr died saying, yeah, kill this guy, Stephen. And he was adamantly against the movement. Had complete doubts that Jesus actually had rose from the dead until he was on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he said he, he saw Jesus alive. And Jesus encountered him. And he called out to him. And not just that, he called Paul specifically to be an apostle, to be sent to the Gentiles. And as soon as he got to that point in his story, the crowd that had gone silent to hear Paul bursted back into an uproar and began to shout, kill him, away with him. They didn't want to hear anything about the inclusion of the Gentiles. They didn't want to hear anything about people like me being a part of the people of God. And they start ripping off their clothes, which was interesting, and throwing up dirt in the air. I mean, it was chaos until finally, I mean, this was centurions and Roman guard. There were hundreds of soldiers. They escort Paul all the way into the fortress, which was the Antonia fortress that, that was right next to the temple there in Jerusalem. And the guards have no idea what's going on, why this chaos broke out. And so they figure out, you know, hey, we're going to do this the Roman way. <laughs> we're going to figure things out at the bottom. So they chain Paul to a post. And they're going to beat it out of him. Because surely he's not innocent. There has to be some sort of law that Paul has broken to cause this kind of chaos. Surely. And I wasn't in there, but Paul told me this afterwards, and there were others who had the opportunity, Christians who were Roman centurions at different points who were able to witness this from the inside, who told me the story. And Paul's standing there, and right before they're about to whip him and beat him and get him to confess to some crime that he did not commit, Paul says, you wouldn't hit a Roman citizen, would you? <laughs> now, you have to understand, Roman citizenship came with a extraordinary perks. Citizenship in any country comes with extraordinary perks. And it was extraordinarily different, difficult to get Roman citizenship. And here's the deal. No matter whether you were Caesar, a governor, a Roman soldier, you could not beat, you could not imprison, and you could not kill a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And so when Paul says, you wouldn't beat a Roman citizen, would you? All the Roman centurions were terrified. <laughs> because if you did beat, imprison, or kill a Roman citizen, your best case scenario is a court-martial. Chances are really good you could lose your life for doing this. So they bring in their commander, and Paul and the commander have a little chat, and Paul's like, yeah, I am a Roman citizen. I was born that way. What are you going to do about it? And I was like, I was really proud of Paul. I was, I was blown away. Because he actually stood up for himself. Like I told him, play that Roman card a little more, you know. 
But now, I mean, sometimes he wouldn't because he thought suffering for Christ would actually advance the gospel in certain scenarios better. But here, and it gave me a lot of hope hearing after the fact that, okay, maybe Paul once again thought I was right. Maybe he shouldn't have come to Jerusalem. Maybe this was the wrong decision. Maybe he should have chosen the path that avoided suffering. And, but he has this conversation, and then the Roman commander finally wants to get to the bottom of this, so he puts Paul amidst the Jewish tribunal. And listens in. But in the midst of that, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, these two different groups, they lead into chaos. And then the Roman soldiers have to break back in and pull Paul out for fear that they're going to rip Paul to shreds without any sort of foundational accusation. And so Paul gets taken out again and put back in prison. And something happens the next night. Paul, sitting in his cell, alone, bloodied, beaten to a pulp, exhausted, falls into a deep sleep and has a vision of Christ standing next to him. And what does Jesus say? Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. I'm sure that was really encouraging for Paul. <laughs> but for me... I was thinking, really? Like, this is Paul. Like, you got Peter out of prison. Like, you healed people time and time again. And I think about all the things that Jesus, you could be doing with Paul if you don't have him in prison. And yet I knew Paul was right. I mean, we both knew that Jerusalem would mean suffering. But I had no idea how right Paul was. And what I mean, it, it's much deeper than just Paul being right. You see, I didn't just misunderstand Paul. I, I'm starting to get that now. I didn't just, just misunderstand Paul. I, I misunderstood Jesus. You know, I'd never met Jesus. Um, I'd heard a lot of accounts from people who had interacted with Jesus and written down some of their accounts and heard their testimonies. And the things about hearing the accounts from others is that sometimes you can come to conclusions, and sometimes they're right, and sometimes they're wrong. We can come to wrong conclusions about Jesus. But how my clarity on who Jesus, how, how my understanding around Jesus became crystal clear wasn't just hearing the accounts about Jesus and what he taught. It was watching Paul live. Watching Paul follow Jesus all the way to death. Then I started to understand Jesus because Paul understood Jesus way better than I did at that moment. He understood way better that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And looking back on these moments now, I start to see the parallels. Parallels I completely missed in the moment such that when Jesus came to this earth, he made a steady and consistent march to Jerusalem. When Paul was called, he made a steady and consistent march to Jerusalem and then through Jerusalem to Rome. When Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to die on the cross, his friends said, don't go, there's an easier way, there's a better way. Bring in your kingdom through your power, through your might, through your manipulation, through your sovereignty. And he said, no, it's through the cross. 
when Paul felt convicted, felt confined by the Spirit to go into Jerusalem and to suffering, all of us, two different churches, myself included, said, don't go there. There's an easier way. There's a better way. And Paul said, no, I'm ready to die if that's what it is. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. You see, Jesus went to the cross and he died for the world. And Paul, he stepped into death to help every single Gentile know that we were a part of that same world that Jesus died for. Paul was zealous to make people like me see Jesus and know that he was a Messiah, a Savior for me. You see, Paul and I didn't just have different visions on life. We had different visions of Jesus. We had different visions of Christ's call on our life. That when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We were both right that Jerusalem meant suffering. But Paul was more right because he followed Jesus into it. And that's hard to embrace. But you know it's even harder to just embrace than to just embrace it for yourself. It's to embrace it and encourage it in the friends and family that God's put around you. When they've got two different paths before them, and one looks like suffering and pain, and yet that is the route that Christ has called to encourage them and to walk with them in that suffering. Folks, that's that's way better. Because listen, there are a lot of counts of Jesus. There are a lot of ways to come to conclusions about Jesus, but there's only one way to follow him. There's only one way to know him, and there's only one way to make the world see him for who he is. And that's when Christ calls you, you're ready to die. Because if he does call you, you will. Let's pray. King Jesus, who's alive and well and seated on your throne in heaven. Thank you for Paul. Far too often I find I disagree with Paul thinking I know better. Rather than realizing he knew you way better than I ever did. God, may we see Paul live. May we hear his teaching And may we hear the resonance of Christ off his voice. May we follow Paul as he follows you. Thank you for Jesus that he lived, died, and rose again. For Gentiles and Jews alike, that we all might be a part of your glorious family and the amazing work you've called us to. Give us the strength, the courage to take courage to bear witness to the facts about you wherever we are, just as you charged Paul. We need your spirit to do so. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.